Vince, you you filed for unemployment, you said, right? Yeah, I... I was just doing what I could to depress the stock market because I and uh, everybody else who is pretending to have coronavirus is uh, <laughs> okay. just doing it because we uh, want to tank sweet government Donald money. Trump's uh, re-election bid. Um, I can't wait until you're in a uh, Ken Burns documentary in the future by Ken Burns' <laughs> head in a jar. Uh, <laughs> I was on the railroad in 2020 and we had pie. Every place we went, they had pie for us. And then I ran the train off the tracks to draw attention to the vast conspiracy oh, of the USNS Mercy. What? So wait, what ha- wait, I just saw you sent that to me. What happened? I think, okay, so it seems like this guy, a a train operator in California, um, just suddenly, like, inspiration came, like, divine inspiration came to him. Um, Not divine, like, he isn't explaining it like it's a God thing or anything. Uh, So not to give you the wrong impression, but, like, um, he basically said that, like, he adamantly and sort of proudly uh, told like FBI that basically he had just kind of the idea had struck him that like, Oh, he was doing his last, uh, train haul for the day. He was near the USNS mercy, which is the one in, that's in California, the sister ship, literally the sister ship to comfort, the comfort that's right. in New York Harbor. They're both decommissioned oil tankers bought in the bought in the eighties. Um, but basically he just decided, Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna run the train off of the tracks to draw attention he, to you know, the fact he, that it's going to that like this ship is here, thinking that it's going, uh, thinking that it's like part of a conspiracy to like take over the country. So he no, it's it's yes, kind of, but it's that he tried to hit the boat with the train. I know, but yeah. yeah. So what he ended up doing was he. Um, he had been like increasingly well, technically frustrated. It's unclear whether he was actually trying to hit it. This, there was another article that <laughs> okay. I read where he there was a direct quote that said, you know, he had been attempting to physically intercept the mercy with the train because he had been concerned that it was like a um, a false flag operation kind of thing. You know, that yeah. it was this. Uh, so he he ended up driving through. Everyone like, thinks it's like Red Dawn three, over here or something. He went through like a concrete wall, two fences and like a parking lot. Oh my right. God. Yeah. The train Doesn't just he, like scooted through like yards and yards and yards of physical <laughs> space off the tracks. And um, turns out foreshortening is real, and he didn't even get close to the boat, which was 200 <laughs> yards from the shore at the time. I mean, that's so, some pretty good land art. Um, I was going to say, I love, so that's a I Thomas love Pynchon. That's like a Thomas Pynchon plot right there. Well, that's like... <laughs> If you think it's a Thomas Pynchon thing now, wait for the detail. My favorite detail in the story is that, because I was like, wait, did he like stay in the cab or did he like tuck and roll or something? (laughs) No, he stayed in the cab and apparently at the last minute as the train was like stopping, he lit a flare and held it out the window, like (laughs) I guess smiling and flipping off a security camera (laughs) while he was doing it. So, you know, I mean. Wait, isn't the point of trains that the point of trains they're on the track 
As someone who operates trains, wouldn't he be sort of aware of the fact that like a train doesn't generally go very far if it's not? You're saying he has no respect for the train, Vince? Listen, I, I kind of feel like... Vince is like, I'm a member of the Train Boy Society. You do I not just, disrespect I, I'm a good train boy. And I didn't realize we had a train socialist on this podcast. I, I do feel like we have to respect our existing stock of trains, though. I do, I do feel quite strongly about that, but... Particularly I, in these times. Right, exactly. I'm reticent to like a good train. to laugh about it though because to me this just seems like wow I totally feel this guy and I totally understand the mindset of like I there's nothing I can do I feel powerless maybe this is the one thing I can do that saves people I'm gonna drive the train off the tracks here I go fuck yeah. it and like I'm all for like wildcat strikes and uh, sabotaging your boss's equipment and shutting down construction sites across New York City by other means if you know the mayor won't do it so i'm all for that but this seems like a clear mental health issue that doesn't yeah. really feel that funny to me yeah TBH, no, same. but but yeah weird weird things will continue to ha- weird things will continue to happen yeah i mean i just think, think it just sure. yeah it just obviously it speaks to um our incredibly unusual moment in time where we're at right yeah totally. where something like that makes a lot of sense all of a sudden right yeah there's something about the story that was not surprising yeah it was like oh yeah of course yeah but it still makes you smile just the thought of the train scooting across a parking lot i mean that's more of why (laughs) that's more of why i'm laughing i just think as a a spectacle what an incredible spectacle um i hope this guy doesn't die in jail because props maybe I don't know. Well, apparently uh, for what he did, the maximum is uh, 20 years, which really makes you think about mandatory minimums, huh? What's the charge? Uh, well, tra- yeah, I was going to say. Train a- destruction? <laughs> train sedition? <laughs> train train murder. It's train murder. He did train murder. In Judge Vince's, in Judge Vince's court, it would be disrespect for the train. Right, yeah. <laughs> I, sent, I sentenced you to 20 years for disrespect of the train. <laughs> We joke, but if, if America really had a had a you know good robust mass transit network nationally, I mean, Tr- train yeah. train assault comes. I mean, with I'm a heavy I'm fully penalty. against the carceral state, obviously, but there, you know, there's got to be justice for the train too. Right. Anyway, um, <laughs> shall we get going? All right, Object all right. oriented train justice. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> oh no. Okay. Welcome to the death panel. The flagship podcast of the U.S. Department of Labor. <laughs> God. Uh-huh. You can support the show at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. You get a bonus episode every week. Plus, it helps us keep doing this. And leave us a rating or review if you want to support us more. Plugs over. Oh, also join the Discord. Mm-hmm. That aside, um, not just patrons can join. Yeah, There's you don't have to be a patron to join the Discord. Yeah, um, we've been doing all sorts of events in there, so it's a fun community. Anyways, uh, Phil, how's it going in Wisconsin? Oh. <laughs> Y'all ready for the primary? Yeah, things seem a little uh, a little strange there, huh? It has been it has been a surreal. I mean, it's already surreal in the sense of just uh, whatever in the in the generic sense that things are surreal. But like <laughs> the magical thinking that we were talking about in the patron episode is uh, in high style right now. Yeah. Um, so we're apparently going to have like as we're meanwhile, like talking about not having the DNC in Milwaukee, we're right. talking about having an election in Milwaukee on Tuesday, which is several days away. Wow. Yeah, I was going to say, 
it's it's kind of amazing to look at the at the chart of delayed primaries because it literally is like singularly like Wisconsin soldiers on uh, time. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like uh, Wisconsin is pretty much the only one that it seems has, you know, done pretty much. Not, I mean, it's not that they're not doing anything. I mean, they're calling in what, like they're trying to get the national guard to be election right. officials, which does not seem like an appropriate use of their, uh, like mandate, or right? An appropriate well, way to administer. An election. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, and, and the thing is too, I'll like, just to go back and for c- the purpose of consistency, I was, yeah. I am not like a, a delay elections head. Uh, you know, uh, I am, uh, you know, it's like, you have to like weigh the facts of the situation, but like the fact that we're not delaying elections here and we think that like the national guard is going to, uh, save us from what is very clearly going to be like a massive public health risk is absurd. Like the background on this, I don't know how much you guys like read about, but like state officials across the state, public health officials are like, Hey, um, this is a bad idea. Having an election (laughs) is a bad idea. Uh, you have many, many different sort of like good government groups, like the League of Women Voters suing the state and saying, Hey, Mm -hmm. maybe be like every other state and delay the primary until maybe after the peak or after what we project is the peak, or at the very least give your, buy yourself some time to like plan for a different procedure for the election. Like, I don't know, one that relies more heavily on absentee ballots, one that relies more heavily on like drive-through voting or whatever, but no, Wisconsin's going to have an election. Hundreds of municipalities have basically said, yeah, we're going to have to close most of our polling sites. You might have to drive to a different town uh, to vote. Uh, In Milwaukee, we have 180 polling places. We're going to open 10 to 12 of them. Right. That's the thing Um, with Madison, too. They're they're not expecting more than 10. So whereas before there would be like maybe a couple hundred people, they're expecting 3,000 voters per polling place. Yeah. Right. So like it simultaneously, this is going to lower voter turnout, right? Because people obviously are going to see long lines and be like, mm, see ya. And right. it's, yeah, it's like increase, automatic voter suppression. It's automatic voter suppression and it's going to increase community spread at the same time. Exactly. Hold that together in your head of this. Like try to figure that one out. Yeah, um, the safest thing to do in a pandemic situation is absolutely to close most of the polling sites and then make it so that more people are reliant on fewer polling places well, and have to funnel into the same place like that oh my and, god and the thing it's, is too like <clears throat> even if you get the national guard to staff some more of these polling places to make up for the loss of poll workers you're still going to have community spread will still happen because you've already consolidated yeah. um right. the, the polling places it'll community spread into the national guard community too oh god <laughs> well but which is yeah not what you want no right i mean and and the likelihood of the results of this election being anything other than garbage is basically zero, right? I mean, there is no earthly way that this will be an even moderately accurate representation of the will of the people. That, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. That's where the magical thinking is going on the most, right? So like... (laughs) Some background, Lord. which is like, why, why is Wisconsin so weird? Is it just because like Wisconsinites are like, you know what? Fuck public health. Fuck an election. <laughs> you can't tell me what to do, dad. Like, uh, that right. is not how Wisconsinites think. Um, we're not like a, we- we're not that weird of a state. Um, but you basically have 
you know, a Republican state legislature, which is to all of the governor's requests to do things like expand the availability of absentee ballots or waive some of the rules on ballot witnessing and voter ID, all the things that might be able to be like a sort of like safety valve in this. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, they've said, no, screw you. So basically what that's left the governor with is like he has a very cabined sense of his own powers. Like he, mm-hmm. I think, is in a sense afraid of like what the consequences of his decision might be for his own authority. Is he going to get slapped down if he tries to do something? Uh, He's basically sort of like waiting. It's almost seemed like he's waiting for a federal judge to tell him to hold the election, which federal judges basically indicated in the Western district of Wisconsin that he's, he's not going to do, but the, is that, is that the uh, hearing that happened yesterday? Uh, Is that what that was about? Yeah. And like props to journal Sentinel reporter, Patrick Marley for, doing really great coverage of this hearing as it was happening. But like the judge in the hearing basically interviews like the Wisconsin election commission or the questions, the Wisconsin election commission Mm -hmm. uh, people. And it was actually a really interesting hearing because like the judge is being very um, deliberate in like questioning witnesses, um, not just the lawyers. So it was very uh, interesting. And the judge at the end of the hearing basically says like, this is appalling uh, this is going to be a public health disaster. Right. This is a bad idea. Yet <laughs> there's basically nothing I can do about it except tell you you ought to if you are, you know, conscientious uh, political officials to uh, hold the election. But I can't force you to uh, or to, to delay the election. I can't force you to delay Interesting. the election. But but I mean, is that the true same- or is that just a deferral of uh, po- the possibility of action there? I mean, I think I think that, uh, you know, there might I haven't seen his sort of like rationale for this. I think it's a bit of a deferral of action because it's pretty clear that there are three elements that you really need to to make a, a ruling in this case. Like there are one clear violations of federal law, right. um, mm-hmm. the Voting Rights Act, um, the, you know, the basic 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause, uh, you know, these these sort of safeguards uh, of, of democracy are going to be violated because who is this, who, who is this going to affect disproportionately um, African-Americans and uh, uh, Latinx voters on the South side of Milwaukee, because yeah. that is where the places where people don't vote absentee, they vote mm-hmm. in person on election day. Um, and so this is going to have a disproportionate effect on those communities, which means it violates the Voting Rights Act, violates the Equal Protection Clause, the 14th Amendment. So at any rate, like the governor is sort of like, well, what if we do these other things? Like, what if we allow, you know, ballot absentee ballots to be counted after Election Day? Because mm-hmm. right now. So here's the thing. We've relied so much on this idea that like absentee ballots are going to save our asses. Mm-hmm. But there are a million over a million absentee ballots have been requested. Yeah, like a record, and, I think. Right. And all of them have to be counted by the end of voting on election day by local (laughs) election officials. And they can't start counting early, apparently, because the machines aren't set up. Yeah, this is this is my favorite part of that um, of of that uh, report, the reporter that you mentioned earlier, his like his uh, tweet thread about uh, about this about this um, hearing. My my favorite uh, part of it, obviously not favorite, you know, it's, it's like pretty horrible, but it's it's so it's so on the nose dystopian funny he they basically say in in the hearing that the machines are bad at regi- registering or counting votes 
when they're when they're fed into the machines on like a separate day so you can't it's like harder somehow to get the tally right like this is i think this is the explanation like yeah it's harder the, to the, get the tally right mm. if you're doing it across multiple days right so if you've so, fed a bunch in on one day and then a bunch in on the next day it's like not like the results are probably not going to be accurate right um, so you're 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 saying that they're counting machines are bad at counting. They just seem Basically. very sensitive. They're very like human, uh, human sort of uh, devices. It seems like they're like, I'm, I'm not working today. I only work on one day, you know. And then I'm not doing. Yeah, they have better right. labor protections than almost any other worker in Wisconsin, probably. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, it's like this is going to be if they end up having it, and I'm really, I'm like hopeful that that there's some sort of Jiminy Cricket on Tony Evers shoulder who's like, you actually have broader emergency authority than you think you do. Um, but I, you know, Keep dreaming, short, Phil. <laughs> short of that, I mean, we're going to have this election and it's going to be patently absurd. And I of think course. that the consequences for like how people perceive the legitimacy of the election are going to be negative. Whereas all you would have to do is delay it. You'd be able to, plan people wouldn't be as confused we wouldn't be debating these minor provisions of uh voting procedure days before the election yeah um Mm -hmm. but no but we're but we're not going to do that because we hate life itself apparently i mean mean, that being said having seen the rest of the way the elections have played out in in states prior to even prior to the uh pandemic hitting the united states i mean considering that already in a state like Wisconsin, uh, which, you know, has a particular track record as a certain type of laboratory of democracy, if you will, if you will, <laughs> um, you know, in I feel like uh, already in Wisconsin, we would have reason to be concerned for the legitimacy of the election in the first place. And now we're doing now right. this is all happening. So, I mean, mm-hmm. is it a stupid question to also be like, will there be enough? Did they print enough? absentee ballots because it just like i mean i'm just remembering the uh a million years ago the trump uh administration trying to get the citizenship question on the census like i can't imagine that also necessarily there's like an unlimited supply of absentee ballots sitting around i would have to imagine that there's also that sort of admin aspect of it that i mean I, I think that that was a concern for the election commission, although given what we've seen, so like they've now printed, um, so, I mean, they've been, they've actually sent out to say nothing of how many they printed. They've sent out like a million or so, which by comparison, I think that there were maybe 900,000 900, some votes in the 2016 primary. Mm. So in terms of like actually being able to print the things, I don't think that is the the main issue. The main issue is can you get them counted and certified? Yeah. Right. So like basically right. if it's the case that nothing changes, that no election rules change and we don't allow election officials to at the very least certify absentee ballots after time on election mm-hmm. day, that means that possibly hundreds of thousands of people are not going to have their absentee ballots counted in the election. So even under we're this is not talking like best case this is like the baseline scenario. The minimum. Where, yeah. Right. Yeah, where we're already having uh toxic in-person voting that will kill people on election day and deter people from the polls. It might also be the case that in, in addition to that, 
hundreds of thousands of people's votes are simply not counted on election day. This is, you know, this is sort of like a a quickly emerging like democratic crisis. Right. Mm -hmm. There seems to be like a lot of finger pointing back and forth between like the DNC and the governor's offices. Like, is it clear how much control the state parties have versus like the state governments on elections like it seems like the state parties have like so much more control over the primary process than i feel like it seems to be reasonable you know what i mean they do but in but in wisconsin you know it it varies by state obviously and in wisconsin you know because of a variety of like progressive era type reforms the, the state government actually has a decent amount of control over election procedure. And in fact, the Wisconsin Election Commission has the authority to change all kinds of things given emergency circumstances, right? Mm -hmm. And so like it's able to like reinterpret provisions of like the state statute. Like the Mm. idea that no one has the authority to just act based Mm -hmm. on a public health crisis is to me patently absurd. And like, I honestly think, I don't understand the political calculus here. You do it, you change the date of the election consistent with existing emergency orders, right? The safer at home order. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Um, And then what? You allow, you know what? You force the Supreme Court to like then step in and say, you know what? We're okay with a bunch of people dying and not being able to vote. Like, you know, (laughs) it's just like, it's sort of like, let let them come and try to enforce that. I mean, I don't see the... I don't well, see the uh, political calculus in, in not doing that. It, yeah, well, it doesn't make I, any sense. Right. But can I also just like, like, let's just think about this also in context, right? Because it's not happening. This like this event is not happening like in a vacuum, like all in response to the coronavirus crisis, like all over the world, executives are like using this as like an excuse to like claim more authority. I don't know. Tony Evers just doesn't seem to like kind of get how you do that. I mean, in, right? in one sense he does in the sense that like he was a, like the safer at home order is, is pretty, um, pretty extensive. I I think, you know, it's not like he just didn't do the public health thing. Right. Right. But he's like um, worried about, he's worried about, I, I'm, I'm kind of playing devil's advocate here, but like, he's worried about protecting his power as governor, but like probably the best way to do that would just be to exercise it in this situation. Like, yeah, that, that much you're, I think, uh, no, you're certainly right. And it's, I don't know. I was talking to Artie about this earlier, which is that like this get this gets me into like a little bit of a wormhole in my thinking, which is, okay, let's like pull back from this. We have governors around the country exercising pretty strong, like what's called a parents patrie uh, authority to like protect people's public health. Right. But what what should we make of that, given how infrequently the state uses his authority to protect anything right. that, um, <laughs> you know, protect people from risk generally. Right. Like that's a yeah. very, like, like what can you infer about the fact that that's going on now, but it rarely happens, uh, generally speaking. And like the idea that like somehow power is not functioning here or people aren't actively trying to take advantage of these situations, uh, or that that's like coming if it's not already here is kind of absurd and like it's really funny to open up like a major newspaper or something still and the way that the reporting is happening is so um i I don't know just sort of like well you know i shit happens uh is sort of like the style of reporting (laughs) 
I was thinking about the thing I sent you be the uh, thing that I tortured you with earlier this week. Oh, my God. <laughs> yes, uh, that was a particularly beautiful episode of The Daily with Michael Barbaro and Sarah Cliff, um, which just sort of set up every single supply chain issue as a, hmm, so curious. They were operating under uh, normal procedures during the time, as it was understood, and you know, you know, our this, is, this is just sort of society. like this is how our economy is. This yeah. is just how we do it. I think, um, I think before we get uh, too too maybe stuck on 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 this, um, Phil, you brought up one thing uh, much earlier, uh, which is that you know, in the midst of all this, they're you know, we're they're wrangling about um, delaying or figuring out some other way to do. Um, the DNC while they're also actively pushing ahead with doing the election. Um, but maybe even to like, because it's been something that there's been a lot of, uh, updates on recently, maybe to like pause on the DNC for a moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think. And also just, well, I would say like the, they are two different. They's right. Uh, yeah, yeah, like yeah, right, right, they right. is in Wisconsin, like the state legislature and governor. And then the, they with the DNC is like the DNC, I guess. Right. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I think I think this actually is pretty illustrative of of um, some of the stuff that we were just mentioning, even because on the one hand you do have uh, you know people people acting in this situation again, whether it's like risk risk mitigation or or seizure of power moments, right? right? Um, while the still the like the public facing thing is um, oh oh until we can like wait this out or like wait out the right. Wait out the um you, you know the the worst of it, which we should all kind of know by now is not at least within the timeline of like July August or whatever. Realistically, at this point, in terms of the the un, pretty unchecked spread throughout a lot of the United States right now, is like completely unrealistic. Oh yeah, I just had um, a dental appointment for September canceled. Right. Yeah. So. <laughs> So the idea, but I guess this is what I this is what I want to mention because there's a lot of there's been a lot of reporting around this, and one of the things uh, it's interesting because especially some of the people who are giving giving comment and background on mm-hmm. like the question of whether you should move uh, the DNC, some of them are like very telling. Um, a quote from a super delegate, like actually a Wisconsin <laughs> super delegate, uh, yeah, um, who says uh, who says of the of the DNC. And like basically he's like asked whether it should happen and uh, and and like whether there will actually be essentially the the bottom line of the question is like whether there's actually a meaningful choice to be made here, Uh, even though like, you know, Sanders could still very much win. Um, But I think they're like collectively everyone's sort of doing their best to Mm -hmm. like imagine that away, um, basically. What so anyway, one of them says, uh, quote, if nothing drastically changes in the world, it's going to be Joe Biden. Like, I that understand was from the New York that, Times piece, right? Uh, I, I don't. I think, I think so, it's from yeah. NBC, maybe. But, oh, but I mean, can you imagine saying that <laughs> in this situation, in any context, well, if nothing changes, nothing in the world? will change. Yeah. Nothing's I, not like we've that, seen drastic change. <laughs> nothing will drastically change. Oh yeah, nothing will meaningfully change. Nothing will meaningfully yeah. change. Um, <laughs> I just feel like so much of this is like a false uh, sense of calm that everyone thinks that they have some sort of obligation to present to the public or something. That's, but that's kind of, I mean, that's partially what I'm saying, but I think that some of these people, especially the people who are just like super delegates or delegates or whatever, I think some of them just actually like believe or buy this stuff because they, many of them are not people with like, uh, like not all of them are necessarily like elected officials. 
for example, most of the people right? I know that were that were delegates in the state of Florida um, were just people who were honestly like major party right. acts. But um, but so for example, like one of them, one of them uh, wrangles over. One of them like f- is so focused on like the question of oh the TV audience will not be like ready for uh, for a <laughs> DNC in July like that. Uh, and the the funniest thing is the quote is like in July right after recovering from this upheaval like okay okay you know I have mean? to yeah the next thing I'm going to say we might have to cut around creatively but I'm going to try and talk about it as like um, as carefully as I can so as not to break um, who this is but um, I I was talking to someone whose job it is to like organize this very major international event that happens once a year um, <laughs> with about a hundred thousand people who attend this is like an event that's been going on for a very long time. It's like very important internationally speaking. It's not an art fair, I promise. Uh, <laughs> it, it's possible that this event might never occur the same way. Yeah. Um, they don't see necessarily the city that they hosted in being willing to ever have a hundred thousand people concentrated or, or putting strain yeah. or more putting, you know, strain on their, um, their infrastructure and their ability to respond or, uh, handle like, let's say a sudden outbreak on a multi-day thing. Um, let alone the fact that like many of these delegations were planning on staying in Chicago, which is about a 90 minute commute. So you essentially have this possibility. Now you're talking about the DNC. Right. DNC wise, like you have this possibility through the DNC to sort of create a second wave in and of itself. Right. That would then Mm -hmm. immediately. Well, not just the DNC through the RNC too, which is still planned for August. Right. Exactly. But through these two conventions, you could single handedly restart the entire or start the second or third wave of this yeah. disease vector. And if they uh, continue to like tell people that there's still a possibility of these events happening person to person, like the longer they go on, the more negligent in my mind that becomes because, you know, it's sort of up to people in power to like lead by example, right? If we're making this whole thing fall in personal responsibility, um, you know, it's, Mm -hmm. it's a high time for everyone to stop pretending that it's sunny and rosy outside. You know what I mean? Yeah. And there is sort of like a deferral of deferral of serious thinking here too, because I think one of the things is being floated. I mean, certainly the business community in Milwaukee and a lot of the sort of backers of the convention, there, the, the idea that this is not going to be happening here is simply too, it, it's, it's too much of it. I mean, people are losing sleep over that. They're not losing sure, sleep. They're yeah. like, they're losing as much sleep over that as they are about anything else. And right. so like one of the options that's now being floated is like, what if we just push it back to August, right? Let's just push it back to, uh, to August. Um, and I think that like, if that, it, you know, if that happens, it will be simply so that they can buy time to, I mean, I would hope that it's simply an effort to like buy time to figure out how to make a virtual convention that is broadcast, not right. seem utterly weird and dystopian uh, because, <laughs> right. because right now I'm sure that the thing that's like the producers are thinking like, well, we have all of this airtime, right? It's supposed to be gavel to gavel coverage for, you know, several days. What does that look like if, there aren't crowds of people like the, the, the whole like 
visual register of politics depends on the idea of like mass crowds. This is obviously why it was so important when Trump was inaugurated that they had like, you know, debate over (laughs) how many people were there. Right. Um, Like the idea that people are out, that's just like something we've come to expect visually. It's really, really important because also the main way that we participate in democracy is not by doing stuff. It's by watching stuff. And Mm -hmm. so they're trying to, they're somehow trying to figure out how you convey a sense of like, support and uh an acclamation for joe biden already yeah. that already if they would have ha- if assume away covid19 pretend that that's not the right. case right you still have to hold the event with the idea that like there's going to be massive public acclamation for joseph robinette biden yeah. this is Patently would have been patently absurd to begin with, but now it's like even the visual, visual register is included, and that's. I mean, like I I'm mean, curious as as artists, what you think? Like, how do you solve that problem? Oh well, I mean, I don't think they're <laughs> going to solve that problem. I think honestly, to me, I you know, th- thinking about that, and just in terms of the the visual register that we can uh, expect to experience here, I feel like the DNC will be. Um, you know, if they tried to do some sort of, uh, you know, no, essentially like no audience, like uh, television event or whatever, I'm sure that they'll, uh, Frank, I feel like frankly, they'll probably on a, on a pure aesthetic level, basically fail about as, about as hard as Joe Biden currently is already, but also as hard as even, I mean, think of, we've been actually, uh, B and I've been talking about this a lot because, um, you know, it's interesting cause like, obviously the like the production process of our show hasn't changed but we've seen like almost everything not and i don't mean to bring it to podcast but like you know like network tv is mm-hmm. like the worst is like worse than youtube right now which is hilarious right, right um, yeah now that chris cuomo uh has coronavirus he will be doing his uh msnbc show from his own personal basement and i great. for one am looking forward to hearing that room echo which i'm sure will be awesome that room echo and his like strained lungs as he tries oh and to he's going to be doing his own hair it. and makeup too that's the that's the funniest oh, thing to me is great. that yeah. you're really seeing um uh, who's, but just yeah, just the aesthetics the of a sick Chris Cuomo is like <laughs> is so awful. Let's to be me. real the, the 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 aesthetics of any Cuomo. <laughs> Fair, I mean, yeah, Cuomo aesthetics. I agree. I agree, Artie. I mean, I just think like the, the there's just going to be like a lot of explaining away uh, that's like going to need to happen from the like you know establishment wing of the party like in in any regard right here's my fundamental point uh on again on an aesthetic level in terms of like how you do pomp and circumstance in a vacuum without a crowd um my sense i haven't you know looked back at this but from what i recall my sense actually is that something like the rnc like the last rnc as i Mm -hmm. as i remember it the the sort of uh, overall like mise-en-scene or whatever or like the 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 backdrop that they created right was i mean it was as far as i recall aesthetically it was like pretty sleek and fash and that's mm-hmm. something that can carry extremely well right 
um, in the absence of a crowd and as a televised event in my mind, you can almost and do it think, better without a crowd too. Right. And I think that the, like in the, like think of the, think of like the shot of like Patton or whatever from the movie Patton. Yeah. You know, exactly. It's going to yeah. be that. It's well, going to be that shit. Meanwhile, I think that like the, the DNC is going to try to do the same sort of shit that they do all the time anyway, which is to basically like carbon copy the aesthetics of MSNBC, the sort of like friendly approachable fascism. Um, right. And like, <laughs> I mean, if you were going to like do this right, there would be like a very somber and powerful way to recreate these events as like televised events. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, You could use this to like send a pretty major message um, Mm -hmm. and really change the perception of the, the like people's understanding of like the process as well because if you think about the way that it's often covered it's like so much focus on the sort of frenetic energy of these conventions and the bodies moving and the people sweating and shouting and screaming and you know organizing and reorganizing in the floor into physical groups holding signs you know like democratic process on display yeah it's this very sort of performative um like anthill energy (laughs) you know what i mean where it's like everybody's busy everybody's moving like there are Mm -hmm. groups of people that meet up and then separate and you've got like heavy reliance on like aerial shots right Mm -hmm. um shots that come from you know handicam on the floor right that are sort of like in the midst of it right but but there is a there is a version of this process that could be much easier for the general public to understand what's going on, right? Mm-hmm. And that would involve, like, honestly, a shift in the pacing of the coverage of it more than anything else. And we do have the opportunity to do that right now, right? Theoretically, you could understand so much more about the convention process if um, we're not so distracted by all of this performative energy, like, Uh, imagery right people would be curious about what's going on it's like a really really good um opportunity to just have an empty stage with like people on either side too you know new york city is doing this with their press press briefings in the way that actually the although although it didn't end up playing out like this i think in part because uh debate training still is so much uh focused around now like the contemporary debate training or whatever for for presidential elections is still like so focused on around having like an audience even though they're told not to speak or whatever but the way Mm -hmm. that like the last debate was so sort of um quiet and somber and you actually it's like you got to sort of just listen to mm-hmm. the right. people, you know, there's, like, yeah, there there's is a, a possibility lot, for that. There's a lot about, I'm just thinking about the 2016 um, convention, mm-hmm. right? You know, you had the, oh my God, you had the like gold star family chanting, like shouting like USA. Yeah. It was very fash. It was very mission accomplished, Bush administration, high Republican, you know, but you vibes. mean the DNC, the DNC. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so you sort of have, you have that and, that's one way that's, I think, a very sort of aesthetically antiquated way of showing patriotism, right? And I don't think that that vibe is really going to fly right now. I well, think it'll I seem mean, I, wasteful. It's sort of the funny thing about it is the idea of trying to maintain this fiction that like we could have anything resembling a normal convention would, would com- to me, like completely go against what solidarity or a sense of like, standing together with a lot of people looks like at present like why not have delegates phoning in from their homes on some kind of very souped up i mean like the emphasis (laughs) that people are are actually 
who are in power are like other people um, mm-hmm. or that they might have to adhere to the same kinds of rules that other people right. adhere to. <laughs> right. Like, why wouldn't that? Totally. Like, they have to somehow figure out a vis- visual register that that makes an identification with the other kinds of experiences that people in the electorate are having. And if they can't right. do that and they think that they're going to like just have uh, something that like approximates a convention without the bodies, uh, they're, it's going to be not only is it going to be like fash by nature, it's going to fail at the fash that it's trying to do, um, right. which is. I don't know which of those is more horrifying, both of them together. Well, no, but the other thing is that it just it serves only to highlight the fact that the one fact of this that is we all knew was, you know, like if if it, you know, basically gets swung to Biden, if it's like a Biden convention, the one fact that like the DNC knows that like they need to downplay is the fact that no one is excited about him a big empty convention hall like yeah. with a bunch of like lights and cameras and shit and Biden coming out and speaking to a camera with no crowd is like, <laughs> it's like I, I, oh god I mean, I mean it's actually Robert it's, Altman film right now it's, it's amazing so, absolutely it's, <laughs> I was trying to think of the director that that like the, that's, the irony yes. is so palpable that I'm now actually convinced that that is what they are going to do. I mean, to be honest, like the things that I, that I'm like feeling anxious about now is I'm like, Oh my God, are they still going to try and do a shit ton of balloons? Right. Like there are so many things about these like conventions that we don't even like normal people unlike me, but that normal people don't really (laughs) think about as being um, public health risks. But You know, it's a huge public health risk when you've got a droplet precaution situation going on. Fucking balloons. (laughs) Balloons are a huge problem. Beatrice, won't you just think of the balloon manufacturers? Confetti, <laughs> all of these systems that use pressurized air to put small things that like can touch your face and float through the air. Like yeah. these are the types of things like this event, um, as it stood, was going to be a very anxious thing for because like initially we had planned to come up to Wisconsin to all go together. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um I hadn't brought it up yet, but I was not planning on entering the building because it's not safe for someone immune compromised to participate in the Democratic convention. Um, I considered applying to be a delegate and I looked into what it involves. And pretty much if you're disabled or immune compromised, you're pretty fucked and not Mm -hmm. welcome. And I think we have an opportunity to like both change the way that we do this process and make it more legible to the general public make it, you know, feel like you're participating and not just that it's this anointed class of chosen elected people who get to participate and you just watch, you know, and you could also really open up who can be a delegate if it's not so expensive to travel. Like, do we need to be doing these things as big conventions or can they be like a big Brady Bunch Zoom call? You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, but I think that this is... The only reason we do them as conventions is because the DNC has like contracts with people that they... They, they, you know, every year this guy does the balloons or whatever. And this is kind of what I mean, because I think, I, I think frankly, like, uh, in terms of even just imagining the sort of, again, like pomp and circumstance or the, or the mise-en-scene of like the DNC versus the RNC and the sort of like the factors, um, that those like sort of constituent groups take into effect or to take into account when, um, when thinking of both, uh, messaging and, or like what mm-hmm. they're sort of trying to achieve, um, I feel like again, like again, we're almost in this situation where if it's not 
if it's not Bernie um, who's getting the nomination, uh, we have this like perfect storm of uh, factors for like basically securing um, securing like another term for Trump. Right. I mean, like um, Biden is uniquely unlikable, like even most of the people who are his base apparently like don't like they don't really care about him a lot. They're not like jazzed for Biden. Mm-hmm. They're just behind him. But, right. And then, and then on top of it, you have like the automatic, like I'm sure still in November, the automatic again, voter suppression that will come from a public health crisis. If it's not actually dealt with effectively. And we're seeing now, this people. is why we spend so much time on talking about Wisconsin because we're seeing now that it's not that it's like this, these things need to be planned in advance and starting like yesterday. But mm-hmm. The and then but then frankly, the other thing, you know, I talked about like the the I mentioned the the aims that these groups have. I mean, I feel just on a purely aesthetic level, like the RNC in a way benefits from the exact opposite of what Phil was talking about. Like Phil was talking about like the DNC sort of it it being actually like probably a very good idea to sort of find a way to communicate to um, to like their constituents and everything that like the people like voting for them, that the, uh, the, the delegates and, and a bunch of these officials in power are in fact sort of subject to the same, you know, rules and restrictions and live the same life. And I don't think aesthetically, um, the, the, the RNC would ever either even consider or, or need to do that necessarily. I really feel like the, they're, um, again, on, on like a, pure aesthetic level it almost benefits them to sort of lean into this like we are keep calm and carry on we are steadfast like we are in power and we are thus protected like we can we can save you and in in order to do so you need to allow us to like rule you like a god or something Mm -hmm. right i i mean i i think it's like it's interesting because this actually might be a good moment for us to sort of pivot to talking about like maybe Mm -hmm. a Medicare for all check-in, right? Because we are so uh, sort of focused on Biden and and sort of how this like Biden-Bernie thing is playing out, read the convention. Um, Biden was on a major news network somewhere this week and was taking questions from audience members who are like video chatting in. And one was from... Oh, push notification. The convention has been pushed to August. Huh. Yeah, it will be held in Milwaukee saying. as planned a week before Republicans hold theirs. Again, <sighs> even more dangerous now. Yeah. Sorry. Continue. B. Even more dangerous now. This is just this is a tactic of keep calm and carry on and delay, like telling people the real news until we absolutely have to. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. and that's the thing is like, so so Biden was doing an interview and there was a couple from Brooklyn who um, he's a freelancer. She works for a small fashion designer who does not provide employer sponsored insurance and they have a young child. So their family insurance through the ACA exchange is $2,000 a month. Her husband's not working, obviously, because mm-hmm. like Vince, he's like in-person freelancer. Mm-hmm. And she says to Biden, how am I going to pay for my $2,000 a month insurance copay? You know, I have COVID. I'm sitting here in a mask. I can't get tested. But more importantly than testing and treatment, like who cares about that? What about our insurance premium that's due? Yeah. You know, And he went off for two and a half minutes, completely ignoring this woman who is sitting on the other side of the couch from her like infant child and husband looking terrified in a mask on the verge of tears. And he launches into a whole thing that's like, you never should have to pay for testing. This testing thing is ridiculous. 
uh, you should have gotten tested weeks ago and completely ignores her question and proceeds to just say like, oh, I'll make coronavirus treatment and testing free. Right. And yes. And how will you do that? I know. No, no, you know, no. Shut follow up. Up. And, and, and Anderson Cooper is Book just there nerds. nodding blinking doing the thing that everybody's been doing when they're interviewing biden and he's like spouting off some stuff that isn't really cogent yeah, or really like, answering no, the no, viewer's ahead. question no, go ahead oh it's okay but it's they okay. have this woman on camera right they have her on camera with her family and they don't like he still is not held to account for not answering her question yeah right and he is still out there saying, I oppose Medicare for all and single payer will not solve this because what we need now is like rural hospitals have no money. They're going to need <laughs> fancy private insurance uh, patients coming through. And it's like, are you fucking yeah. yes. do, how and stupid how do you do think people are? How do hospitals get money? How <laughs> on earth does that happen? Right. Yeah. It's, or like, well, it's actually like, how many people who go to rural hospitals have anything other than Medicaid, which right. is very few. Well, it, <laughs> And the other thing is like, no, Joe, it's not going to solve this crisis. It's going to solve this crisis and then like 25 other things that like, you know, that, that like need to be fixed in America like yesterday. Like it's so. Do you want to hear this fantastic direct quote from uh, yeah, Joe Biden? Get, get Probably not. Us. But we have business. we have a whole number of hospitals that are being stretched, including rural hospitals that are going to need more financing. That doesn't come from a single payer system that comes from the federal government stepping up and dealing with the concerns that they have. Now, if you had told me that this was by like this quote was from like a bunch of other people and said that the next sentence was we need more than a single payer system. We must nationalize the entire health care <laughs> yeah. system. Now I Hell would yeah. be like NHS. Yes. NHS. NHS, the NHS. problem that you're setting up is true. Single payer can only do so much to help this crisis. What we yeah. need is like a national coordinated, you know, nationalized and owned by the people health system that includes everything from like home care nursing to the biggest urban hospital, right? Because yeah. the only way that this is going to work is by pooling and sharing resources and doing that in a way that's like centrally organized, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But no. Joe Biden saying that what's more important is for those magic Cadillac customers who are so few and far between um, with fancy insurance who haven't lost their jobs, right? That those are the people whose insurance premiums will save hospital financing. Yeah. I mean, and speaking of hospitals, shout out to uh, Steffi Woolhandler of uh, Physicians for a National Health Program who has uh, been going out saying basically that, look, they they ran some quick numbers and assumed that of the of the current um bailout of like the the cares act um mm -hmm. money that's uh, expected to go to hospitals that something like 26 billion of the 100 billion will be spent on administrative overhead alone and most of that administrative overhead is like insurance Gotta billing, do that billing private insurance billing i'm still getting dealing with calls. formularies like all of that stuff yeah, yeah so I'm all the cruft on the top of the system that again go back to listen to medicare for all week you know we talk about well, this all, quite a lot and um can we also just like note that you know who seems really non-essential right now insurance billing departments in hospitals well it's Wild. it's a little ridiculous when you've got pop-up morgue tents and trucks backing into like new york city hospitals and you have the javits center 
turned into a hospital yeah. and a hospital boat and you're uh, opening additional like 3000 <laughs> beds in like schools and other hotel rooms in the city mm-hmm. that you would then turn and say that somehow nationalizing the entire system is not the way to go. Right. Like, who per- gets to bill for the treatment that's done in the Javits Center? No one's been able to answer that question for me yet. What yeah. percentage? Yeah, I mean, the- when, when people are dying in the Javits Center and their families are being billed, I'm sure that no one will say, I'm so grateful for Joe Biden's empathy and his <laughs> authentic folksiness. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. that doesn't that that does nothing. Nor yeah, will as, they- your lo- as your loved ones start to sound like they're breathing through concrete. They're going to just be so happy to hand over their Jesus. insurance card in order to make sure that, that that hospital gets paid for the decision that they might make about rationing their care. What, you know? uh, what percentage of the, um, of the hospital boat is actually devoted to billing? <laughs> <laughs> it's like that's in the aft. Yeah, that's. Uh, I mean, they're old imagine? oil tankers, right? Maybe it's in the. Uh, there was actually room for for three thousand beds on the hospital boat, but, but two thousand department <laughs> room, yeah. room for the billing department needed to be included, so we had to slash the number of beds. Yeah, yeah like it's ridiculous. Well, no, they just brought right? a whole other boat. That's that that boat trails boat? behind that boat. Yeah, that's the billing <laughs> boat. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's an armada. That would be a more efficient way of doing it because technically, you know, I've, I was looking at like where else uh, the USNS uh, Comfort has been deployed, um, and it's got an interesting history, including including tours in uh, both Desert Storm and uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom. So, um, just saying, this is one troop cool. that came back, I guess. But um, you know, I'm really glad why, that you w- did the ship manifest like history. That's I'm. It's important that we have that expertise on this podcast. <laughs> That's very <laughs> critical. I mean, uh, yeah. It, actually, it, frankly, it's got a no, really I'm not being sarcastic. No, I know. But actually, frankly, if you look, it's got like a like almost a Forrest Gump vibe to it. I mean, it was deployed for Katrina. Um, frankly, mm-hmm. uh, it was in the harbor, uh, just after nine 11, although I don't think it was like used a ton, but anyway, but no. I'm just saying that after <laughs> watching event horizon, I always believe it's important to know the history of every, oh ship. yeah. Oh yeah. Haunted ship. Haunted oh, for ship. Sure. Oh, we should, that's a, that's a good moving to add to the screening list. For that's sure. where, that's the billing department is just a giant <laughs> spiky metal Sphere. orb. <laughs> yes. That, like, oh wait, you haven't people. seen the billing department that runs this ship. <laughs> Inferno. It's like not funny, but like the boat is so easy to yeah. make fun of. Well, well, it is. It is true though that like okay, yes, yeah, so some of this administrative costs, right? Um, would go towards making sure that uh, more staff could maybe be allocated towards like coordinating supply orders yeah. or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I think what's really important to remember is that um, study after study has shown that particularly within an emergency room in an urban area in the United States, about 23 to 27% of the cost or revenue is like goes towards admin. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. So, and that, that involves less the sourcing of uh, products, but more the tracking of individual itemized consumption mm-hmm. and billing practices, right? So it's important to remember that, you know, when you get that bill and it's got the $500 Band-Aid, yeah. that there is, it is someone's job to make sure that all of the things being used on you are getting tacked onto your bill. And that Inclu- includes like... 
if you've died, they make sure that everything that's in that room is added to your bill right. that you've used. Including in an even more uh, sort of like specific to the scenario uh, example, uh, we've I've seen a bunch of examples recently online of uh, like on uh, posted to Twitter of people like people are posting their um, medical bills when they are being mm-hmm. uh, either uh, treated for or tested for COVID. Um, and frequently one thing that is happening is, uh, because still so much, uh, t- and even this is, I think this case that I'm talking about specifically is in, in New York, even where there are like sort of tests available, tests are still being rationed. So like one person was saying, oh, they had to, like, they had to basically have this battery of other tests before they could have the COVID test. Mm-hmm. And the insurer is of course like, you know, they're, they're like mandated quote unquote to, to cover the, uh, COVID test. But uh, or they've at least hmm. whether they were technically mandated, they're literally doing it. Um, but all the other tests like they're, you know, it's like, oh, here's a bill for like two thousand dollars. And we're not technically covering all those other tests as part of the, mm-hmm. the as as part of your overall covid treatment, because those were, you know, to them, it's like, oh, for insurance purposes, it's unnecessary or whatever. Right. But yes, all those mm-hmm. things have to be itemized. Um, for like for insurance, et cetera. And yeah, it's a, I mean, it's a huge pain. We've, yeah, we've talked a bunch actually about, um, just the, what is it? There was that study that came out a few months ago that said, uh, you know, if we switched to Medicare for all, there would be like $600 billion in savings in Mm -hmm. just insurance billing alone. Right. And that's a whole ton of employees who can be redeployed elsewhere within these institutions. But the problem is that right now, as it stands, like hospitals, are the way that they function, their systems are all so dependent on these billing personnel, right? Yeah. Everything comes back down to billing as it stands, um, which is which is why, frankly, in my mind, like calling for Medicare for all simply is not enough in this scenario. Right. We have to do more. We have to not only nationalize like and unify all of our health treatment facilities in the United States. I'm talking everything from like alcohol and drug rehab to like surgery centers. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, which this is, this is, um, this is really important actually, because I think there's a, there's another kind of like uh, to, to peel back from like, obviously those are our sentiments, uh, like on this, not even our sentiments. Like that's obviously what you basically need to do. It's the only, it's the only way we can have any leg up on it. It's the smartest possible thing you could possibly do. However, I want to point out actually, again, in this, in the same sense, you know, we've been, we've been talking basically all week about like this, either, either literal deferred action, like, Oh, push the push the DNC to mm-hmm. August or um, about sort of like deferrals of uh, responsibility, et cetera. There's another way that that happens. And I want to, I, I feel like it would be worth talking for a moment about sort of like the meta conversation that's happening in the press right now, where basically there's this very strange thing happening where, although, you know, obviously I know that um, politically where, where most of the democratic establishment stands and considering how right wing the policies of Joe Biden are, Um, I don't necessarily expect this to happen, but like you could see something like, oh, the Democrats like taking this opportunity to say at least Medicare for all, you know, um, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't expect them to go as, go as far as we're saying for like an NHS, although they, they should, but instead of doing that, um, I feel like what we've seen is they've used this as an opportunity. They've realized that like one pivot point that they can do that also sort of resonates with their overall sort of general election strategy um, regarding like, you know, essentially trying to run 
run like a another run once again a defend Obamacare mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. election. They've sort of been doing this thing where they've they've created a whole national conversation around like why won't Trump reopen uh, ACA enrollment. Which is so ridiculous because like how are any of these people who are these six point not well, even six point six million, these ten million people a, in the last two weeks who have just become unemployed supposed to get like supposed to pay for ACA coverage? Well, yeah, I mean the thing is like, yes, technically anyone that's lost their job is now now qualifies for a special enrollment period. Right. Right. Um however, that's not totally true. It's anyone that's lost their job and lost their employer-sponsored coverage, and it involves some significant paperwork and legwork on behalf of the person filing to reopen and uh, qualify for the special enrollment. Which is why I think Democrats are trying to basically get them to. And and the thing is, is like that coupled with the fact that the uh, the guidelines about whether or not testing and treatment for COVID are free are more or less kind of. Um, up to the states to enforce yeah. or decide. There is the option for states to expand their Medicaid coverage. There is the option for them to um, stop surprise billing in this context for COVID care within the CARES Act, mm-hmm. but it is not blanket. Mm-hmm. So please, right. you know, please, of course, get treatment if you can, but like no one can expect it to be free. This, these, these rules that they're like saying that they've passed and that save people from the situation of not seeking care because they have this, because they don't have insurance are simply just guidelines at best. They're suggestions. It's the same way that we're running. We ran the stimulus in, in the CARES Act, or quote unquote stimulus or whatever, yeah. which is just like small business loans. And, um, you know, money towards corporations with a pretty please can you take care of your employees thank you so much we'd appreciate that but ultimately like it is not your boss's responsibility to take care of you it is the government's responsibility to like i think administer the the basic needs of the population as best they can right like isn't that kind of the idea of why we have a federal government not to be like or state government or local not to be like the business bureau right right i mean this is the idea why we have a concept called public health to begin with. Um, <laughs> right. But, but yeah. somehow over the years, the the idea of public health uh, and that infrastructure became severed from the idea of care. And they began to operate as two completely different uh, infrastructures rather than one uh, that was integrated. And obviously, we've talked about so many times, like that's the sort of post-war history of like private insurance and and the like. But the, but the thing that I think is, and again, I think that the coverage of this, like the news coverage of this, like a lot of things, like the meta conversation is all about, it, it's, it really is like whack-a-mole. Like you're, you, you can only talk, you can only write a 500 word article about one thing and you can't talk about cascades yeah. um, of, of crises. So like, here's one thing that I've heard. It's like, well, you know, more people are losing their job the existing system will catch them because of Medicaid, right? Well, do you really know how Medicaid eligibility rules work and like what it takes to qualify and like how income is calculated or how your, uh, your, uh, assets are calculated in those, in those tests? Like, no, it's pretty clear that you don't. 
Uh, just because you're losing your job today doesn't mean you're going to qualify for Medicaid tomorrow. Exactly. Um, yeah. I, also, there's, there's also a waiting period too. Right. right. But and then also everyone's like basically asking. Waived. Everyone's basically asking people to do the Medicaid spend down. Like right, you know? right. Which is why thing, you know if you don't abate rent, if you don't freeze rent, right. Sorry, if okay. you don't put a moratorium on rent, like it'll be pretty quick that people do the spend down. But even still, there's a 30 to 60 day waiting period in a lot of states. But also, let's pretend for a second that we changed eligibility rules, that we like created <laughs> emergency eligibility rules that allowed people to qualify really, really quickly. I don't know. That's like the yeah. assume a can opener thing, right? Assume that you could do that. Mm-hmm. Um, then you would have to face the fact that like state budgets... Which yep. Medicaid is the largest percentage in virtually every state. That's the largest part of the state budget. Are then going to have to reconcile their current spending with the new revenue estimates that haven't even come out yet. Uh, <laughs> and because state taxes are based, you know, for the most part on a combination of income, property, and sales, you got two of the major elements that are going to be very, very strapped in a way that. I mean, the 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 optimistic scenario is you have a trough of like negative four percent GDP. The more realistic one, I think, is like negative nine percent, you know, a drop of nine percent GDP. Um, And then, you know, multiply that for states that already have weak economic growth uh, to Mm -hmm. begin with. There's no way that we're going to come out of this if you're just expecting that like Medicaid system is going to catch people that, right. that, that fall down. Um, there's no way I mean, out of this without States trying to aggressively cut their Medicaid budgets. Like Cuomo is trying to do uh, right like other yeah. governors will assuredly try to do very soon. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is the thing like uh, you know, the a long time ago, uh, I mean, even including, I think in part during Medicare for all week, but um, in throughout, you know, many of uh, the, conversations that we've had about Medicare for all over really the last year. Um, one thing that we've returned to relatively frequently is that like one, one issue with, uh, things like states like California or New York, uh, passing like state single payer is actually exactly a scenario like this because, um, since, uh, you know, since states can't deficit spend, um, since like since states uh, can't do countercyclical spending, basically, you know, they end up in this scenario where it's like, I mean, it is yeah a sort of doomsday scenario. That's why having something like the federal government just like pick up the tab or whatever yeah, in a single like payer like scenario a, is the there's best like case another, scenario. There's like another way we could do this whole thing, right? Like we don't have to do it through Medicaid. There's kind of like a <clears throat> like a pre-existing framework that. Uh, could just sort of be expanded, which yeah. is Medicare's part A, B, and D. Yeah. Um, Put that eligibility el- eligibility age down to zero. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? I mean, to be honest, like, even if we had Medicare for all tomorrow, it would not be enough to, like, effectively have a handle on this, but it would certainly save thousands of lives. Yeah. yeah. Maybe millions the because Medicaid, of the later or, downstream effects. Lowering the Medicare eligibility age to zero should be the weak weenie policy that we're arguing against and that that like the establishment is for but it's not it's now the thing that like actually seems like something that we could be doing but is not uh as uh you know not not currying any seemingly there's no interest in doing this among (laughs) well and it's it's i think 
I know I always say this, but like history will not look kindly on you all for standing in the way of what people needed during this time. Right. As it stands, COVID-19 has boosted support for a universal federal universal single payer program. You know, it's boosted support in Republicans even. Right. It's boosted support in in independents and Democrats. Um, The. The difference is that like yeah, that like uh, morning consult polling right. says that it's essentially at the highest level of support it's had in nine months. Right. So. Um, they show that actually. So the study um, or the survey sort of analyzed like whether or not COVID made you want to support the ACA more or more likely to support like a universal health care program, not an either or, but did it like inspire you to like care about the program more um and guess what like more uh republicans cared about the universal health care proposal than they did about the aca (laughs) (laughs) more independence and more percentage of registered voters were swayed by covid to think more favorably of a fusp Right. Yeah. Well, I don't know. That sounds pretty bipartisan to me. Seems like <laughs> uh, enrollment period is just like a waste of time and we should just be doing moving on and moving the eligibility age down to zero and making it based on residency only. Yeah. Right. We still have some enormous problems there because then you have the problem with cost sharing on Medicare Part B. Also seems like maybe the, uh, you know how, remember how, uh, what was it? God, more than a year ago now, people were all, uh, well, like liber- liberals were all uh, in a, in like a tizzy over like, oh, why would, why would uh, Bernie Sanders like go do a Fox News um, uh, town hall or whatever? And of course he's, he's like Simpler done a couple. Time. But it's interesting. It's funny because like the Democratic establishment has spent so much time being the main one to attack Medicare for all that like for the most part Republicans like the audience could just kind of call it crazy or something. But then but yeah, like the audience for like the Fox News town halls was has always been like really receptive to to Bernie talking. So like, you know, the the Fox News can talk about how dangerous and and terrible like uh, Obamacare is, but um, they don't like because the democratic establishment was doing their work for them, they like practically didn't have to like poison the well on single payer for their people. I've personally had a lot easier time convincing um, Republicans of the need for a federal u- universal single payer or something like a, an American NHS than I have mainstream right. hardline vote blue, no matter who people, right? right? Mm-hmm. Republicans very rarely self-identified Republicans or independents very rarely want to know about the pay for question. Yeah. In their mind, the pay for question is what like the news people talk about and the news people talk about stuff that's irrelevant to their day-to-day lives anyways, because the news people are talking to the elites, right? Mm -hmm. It's just each side has a different perception of who the elites are. We don't disagree on a lot of things when I talk to Republicans about healthcare struggles, Right. It's they're very quick to say, yeah, there are certain things that just should be like taken care of. Right. Mm -hmm. That just shouldn't be handled. It's like especially if it's like they're coming from a moral angle, you know. Well, that just sort of reminds me of your conversation with the leader of uh, Reclaim Idaho. Oh, Um, yeah. Shout out to Luke Mayville. And I think, you know, like what Reclaim Idaho and what the Medicaid expansion push in Maine uh, and, and and other states, Nebraska, Utah, suggests is that even in these like Trump plus five districts, uh, 
expanding once you isolate the issue Mm -hmm. and actually force the referendum on the issue rather than having this just sort of this partisan war, which people can only understand in the most generic identitive terms, um, then yeah, obviously there's, there's a lot of support for doing what is necessary to uh, sustain people's lives and not bankrupt them. (laughs) Crazy. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I think that it's, it's always said about how, Oh, like Trump was the best thing to happen to television news. Right. But I also think that Trump is one of the best things to ever happen to the modern Democratic Party, because (laughs) in an era of their increasing out of touch irrelevance and the, you know, decreasing uh, daylight between uh, mainstream Republicans and Democrats policy wise. I mean, the whole FISA thing this past week is a great example. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, they were growingly apparently very, very irrelevant. Right. And it's almost like you need this like gigantic injection of like a really fucking grotesque identity in order to remind people why they have to fall in line. No, I was just going to say, remember the like after 2012, like the Republican Party put together that like autopsy, whatever that like they then promptly like ignored. Like it's totally true that like Trump has basically enabled uh, the Democratic Party to not ever even have to come up with a document like that. Um, and, and just, you know, continue as they were like, well, and, and it's one of the things that like, he's like so grotesque that he is such an easy target, Mm -hmm. right? If, if you are tired and frustrated and your life sucks and everything's precarious and you're suffering under austerity, you don't have a lot of mental energy to analyze why and what it is that has put you in this situation. Right. Mm -hmm. But with Trump, we were delivered a one word, five letter reason. Mm-hmm. And it's a very effective tool of suppression and miseducation for people, too. Right. Like, it's one of the things that we talk about all the time is like we talk about the administration because we want to, like, look under the rock and see whatever the fuck Miss Seema Verma is up to. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. But we're not sitting around all day talking about, like, Trump's appearance on whatever, you know. Like, yeah. honestly, I haven't heard a clip of the man speak in a while because I'm more focused on, like, what the fuck Azar's up to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, that, you know? and that's sort of the thing that disturbs me about the Biden candidacy above all, which is, you know, OK, so there's a lot of political science modeling on, like, the fundamentals of the economy. And, <laughs> you know, it sort of says that, like, if things are as bad as they are now and they're going to get worse, Biden stands a pretty good shot of being um elected now yeah a lot of things there aren't that many presidential elections the n is very low so there's a lot of noise and i guess i wouldn't bet my career on uh you know something that's so noisy but okay assume that they're right i just think it's what is being promised by biden at the very least is a bounce back to some prior state but if you look at what people want at least if you look at revealed preferences, and I take that as like people engaging in costly action that could really put themselves at risk. So Amazon workers. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. What they're asking for is this. Uh, the 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 one woman who was uh, protesting outside of the uh, distribution center, I think, said what we want. They're telling us to wash our hands. <laughs> we don't even have time to wash our hands. They didn't have time to wash their hands before. COVID. They didn't have time to do 
anything uh, before COVID. They weren't able to take the, you know, a reasonable number of breaks uh, before the pandemic. And now not being able to do that is putting themselves and everybody else around them in peril. And that's not a demand for a bounce back to some prior state. That's a demand to do something or for a kind of uh, uh, politics and a kind of like uh, economy that makes it possible for us to go on surviving uh, as a like species. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so like that's, that's what people uh, want. And the idea like we're going to go back to the Obama era where Amazon could do whatever it wants to its workers and so forth. Like that's, you know, uh, kind of absurd to assume that that's what people want. Mm-hmm. So I, I think, Phil, what, what you mentioned, all the things like not having breaks, um, things like not having time to like wash your hands or, for example, like being things that were like that already predated like any of uh, any of this, that just like these conditions right. are the same. That's, you know, it's similar to like what we have heard of like conditions at like whole, uh, like whole foods, um, mm-hmm. stores and like yeah. shout out to whole worker actually, um, for, uh, helping to organize the, the yes. strike Friend, on friends March of the, 31st. Yeah, friends of the show, whole worker. They're a great organization. I had the pleasure of sitting down with two of them. It's a really good interview. I recommend going yeah. back to it. Maybe we'll link to that in the episode description um, as well. But I think this is one of the, and you know, we've, we've talked about this a little bit, but I think one of the things to, one of the things that really concerns me going into like uh, having today, seeing the, you know, the number jump up to like 6.6 million or whatever, just for, for this week. And that being, you know, 10 million, uh, new unemployed people in just the last two weeks, um, makes me think about the, the conversations that we've had actually, I think several weeks ago now when, when this was starting to unfold about like, um, you know, we we had that, we had that conversation about like, don't like never waste a good crisis. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. and the idea that like, um, if you think of the last financial crisis, if you think of 2008, there are all these things that never came back. Right. Um, these, there are these things that are permanently gone. And I think the thing that concerns me, um, particularly today thinking about the, you know, the, the dramatically higher number and the fact that I think like pretty much every estimate that we've, we've seen, um, for like where unemployment could go in, in, uh, in this situation is still lowballing. Mm-hmm. But, um, just thinking of how this is, we're already in this point of massive transition to uh, like full on, uh, not just service economy, but like gig service economy. Right. Um, and the who pro- you'll notice are suddenly becoming the new solution to everything. Right. right? Yeah. In the era of COVID. Is, right. Yeah. I mean, oh, let's take let's take Postmates or DoorDash and figure out how to like integrate Walgreens into Postmates right, now. Yeah. So it's like no, but I mean, and your and like Amazon is like internally calling its not internally whatever Amazon has like called its people like the the new Red Cross or whatever. Right. But the um that this as an inflection point is. You know, I, I guess I'm just saying again to like ponder what we could what we could lose here. There is a very real possibility that like most that even if there was some resolution to this situation, um, just on, on a pure level of like the virus or right. whatever, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that just in terms of who is in power now. And again, I don't just mean Trump. I mean, also like pretty much almost every Democratic elected official uh, Especially as well, Andrew Cuomo. that there's not there, there isn't, 
there isn't a good um, avenue other than, and you know, there's usually not a good avenue either, anyway, but like there's not a really good avenue other than like real mass change and collective action to make sure that like if this is ever resolved, that everyone doesn't just get funneled into gig work. Everyone doesn't let these like that these jobs which are just yeah. gone. It's a really um, good this point. is the thing. Our economic fix is to boost unemployment benefits here in the United States. Right. Denmark's was to put in place unemployment protections right. by stepping in and paying the salaries, but through the employer, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Instead of paying them separately as a government requiring them to re-register, you know what I mean? Like, so we've added an administrative burden, a separate process that's handled separately, but it's like still money going everywhere else. Right. But if we've allowed everyone to get laid off in order to have like, uh, this money from the government versus they have to be continuing their job to get the money in Denmark, Mm -hmm. we've lost any and all like job protections that anyone has who's an at-will employee, you know, like Mm -hmm. every person who is not a union member who has been laid off when you, if you have the opportunity to reapply for your job, first of all, it's frankly insulting that people are going to have to do that. And second of all, I highly doubt any of the terms of your employment are going to necessarily be guaranteed to be the same. Because if there's no labor movement that you're, tied to who is going to fight for you and what choice will you have, but to take your worst job back that was already horrible and inhumane. Right. You know? And, and I mean, also like, you know, think about it too, from like the perspective of like, you know, a big fucking employer, like this just proves to them that like, they don't want to have to cover healthcare. Like they don't, they want to get as many people onto like, you know, contract work and gig work as they possibly fucking can, because like, you know, they're smart enough, some of them to see that, like, the shit's going to roll around again. And at that point, you're just going, you know, you're, you're going to have to cover even more fucking medical bills. Right. Like, so from the perspective mm-hmm. of people who don't want to provide uh, health care to, you know, to their employees who want to save money right on on shit like that, like those you know, those employers are going to be like, of course, we're just going to hire everybody back as temp workers or gig workers because it'll make it so much easier to lay them off yeah. the next time this shit happens. Right. No, this is why we should be very much paying attention to the deep business press right now, because there's right. going to be a lot of articles about, yeah, making your operation as lean as you possibly can <laughs> and also telling yeah. your con- yeah. telling your consumers or whoever's on the other side of the equation that like it's okay that like what you're losing by not having real human beings uh, or having uh you know uh, a, a sort of a much leaner uh less well-paid less securitized like workforce um that, that's gonna be okay we're gonna you're gonna have to do that that's the sacrifice you're gonna have to accept and right. we're gonna offset it with very slight discounts and like technology quote unquote right and no, postmates partnerships and a post yeah, no, it's funny that you said that. And like the Postmates joke that I made earlier um, is not a joke. It's actually exactly what Walgreens Corporation did, where they have partnered with Postmates in order to facilitate delivering yeah. the increased volume of online orders. Right. Like and, and what would Walgreens have had to do if Postmates didn't exist? Well, they would have had to hire people and possibly offer them benefits under duress of 
being necessary during a panic. Yeah. Which mm-hmm. is exactly why when someone says they're going to disrupt an industry, this is what that actually means. Yeah, of course. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're disrupting your your right to a humane job. Right. By mm-hmm. disrupting the industry. And you know it's You're very adorable. The basic social contract. Walgreens, which obviously is really going to be on the knife's edge here, I'm sure, of cruel and unusual business practices, right? Yeah. In this crisis. Um, Walgreens was floated by Forbes as possibly the thing to watch as a barometer for how businesses will survive or thrive mm-hmm. in an Which, era by the way, for our international listeners, is the same company as Boots. Right. Boots. Yeah. One of the largest pharmacy chains you guys in get the world. The, you guys get the slightly better branding right. than we do. <laughs> and better, they have their own skincare products and they're decent. But still, <laughs> whatever. Um, you know, CVS also um, owns a PBM and uh, Aetna. <laughs> So, you know, we're going to see, I think possibly maybe CBS won't do so well because they are tied to private insurance, which might not do well now. But like if you've got to boost the pharmacy chain, then you got to bail out private insurance because somehow it makes sense that an insurance company, a pharmacy distributor and a pharmacy can all be one company. But that's Mm. just me. So I don't know. And I, you know, I've got my tinfoil hat on, right? That would be crazy. (sighs) (laughs) <laughs> to, to suggest that either if they were going to be one company, they should be nationalized. Otherwise, they should not be one company. But that's just me. You know, crazy B over here. B is the lefty, right? <laughs> Saying we should seize all the pharmacies because they can't run themselves well anyways. Will you ever learn? Have you ever tried planning an economy? <laughs> any, uh, any final thoughts before we wrap? <laughs> oh, boy. You guys have um, just made my day. This would have been yeah. such a drab <laughs> and lonely day without this. This is good. I like our new um, recording time because we get to hear the church bells toll behind you as you talk, Phil. And it, it just adds like a yes. certain mise-en-scene that, that just wasn't there in the evening before. I watched <laughs> over by a church bell of loving grace. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think that probably does it for this episode mm-hmm. right um any oh there is a slight something to plug phil you've you've got a medium now oh yeah a regular liz oh, warren yeah. over here I don't look know, at I, you phil did a medium yeah, yeah is it bad is me no no, no no i was actually thinking we should repost them on our website though because i already have the blog started and ready to go yeah go for it so that sounds we good. can do that but no sure. so phil you've been you've been doing a lot of writing in your in your Isolation. Isolation, shall I we say. I am writing to just preserve my sanity a little bit every day. It's, I think, absolutely necessary. Um, but trying to, like, keep up with, there's this, yeah, trying to keep up with uh, the research that I'm doing, but also recognize how utterly um, different everything sort mm-hmm. of is. And, yeah. you know, the, so, yeah, this is just sort of like a meditate, I guess, sort of meditations yeah. on on trying to pretend to be a social scientist uh in the midst of a pandemic while the social itself is unbundling and unspooling don't worry phil i'm i'm doing the same thing but with restoring a chair so (laughs) i i have to say though i'm doing the same thing with my animal crossing i I do think you're doing a great (laughs) job i'm doing the same with my um 
plant eugenics and Animal Crossing. But um, Phil, <laughs> I don't think I've ever had a more clear understanding of federalism than I have now. And I really wish you had been my college professor because I feel like I would have learned a lot more because these articles are really, really fantastic. So All right, don't now feel you're bad that me it's to on keep medium. Up with it. So I can't, this can't be like that thing where I start a medium and then do three when something crazy happens. And then like, this is what I'm years saying. Later I go back like, Oh, it's interesting. I read all these crazy things. Yeah. That's, that's the, why, uh, that's why I'm saying I'm trying to pressure, peer pressure you. There's a, I guess a, that's what praise is anyways. Right. Peer accountability. Pressure. Uh, yeah. Vincent B probably know about, about this, but Phil, there's a, there's a piece that I really like from Corey Archangel from many years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, that's called, um, sorry, I haven't posted. That's just a collection of a bunch of people's blogspot posts that are headlined. Sorry, that's... I haven't posted in a while. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny actually when I, uh, those are some of my favorite YouTube videos too. When someone goes viral and then comes back seven years where later have I been? and does it. Yeah. Where have I been? Or like, sorry, I've been hiding updates. Right. Yeah. Right. And it's just very like, yeah, it's so keep going. Anyway, yeah. Check out uh, if you if you want to read about federalism. I've been finding them useful just to mull over some some things in a some F. Yes. Yeah. Pan- pandemic federalism, I think, is a good one to start with. Maybe we can link to that sure. in the, but, in the yeah. show notes as yeah, well. Anyway. So, yeah, jo- join the discord. Come hang with us there again. Anyone can join. You do not have to be a patron. And if you want to support the show, patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. So we actually do two episodes a week if you want to support the show and get access to the second bonus episode, as well as the entire back catalog of everything else, which how many of there are now? There's, I think, I don't know, 60 something <laughs> this extra is like episodes. 138th episode, which doesn't even count. Um, all the bonus stuff that we've done. Medicare for all week at all. Um, so if, even though despite the fact that we go long, if you're running out of death panel content, patreon.com slash death panel pod is the place to go. Cause you can go back to all the early episodes. I heard someone started at like episode 14. I don't recommend that. I'd start deep well. when our audio quality was better. That's yeah. me personally. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, like I would suggest, I don't know, maybe episode 50 something gets really mm-hmm. good starting in July when, when Phil and Artie join too. So yeah. yeah, highly recommend some of those, but, um, yeah. Does everyone have like a personal favorite? We actually got requests for what's our all personal favorite back oh, catalog episodes. Yeah. Mm. I, I like the truck. Ep- the trucker episode is. Oh, that was fun. Oh, yeah. That was, Trucks that was, for that Bernie. was great. I yeah. That was lot. with Todd from BP blood us. Yeah. That was a fun one. I think my one of my favorites that I would recommend going back to because I think it's like an important thing to sort of recenter like a policy objective and and think bigger politically speaking um, is our Green New Deal episode. Oh yeah, that was good. Vince and I did, which it it was a pretty. We did a deep dive and covered basically sort of the entire framework of the Green New Deal. Uh, plan on Bernie's website got into stuff like the um, CCC and other types of like public works programs that have sort of been lost to history right Uh, it's a really great conceptual episode it's sort of like was that our first episode that ran for like two hours I remember that one being really long but really good I think it was our first longest episode before we had many many more that were much longer (laughs) Longer, yeah totally yeah topping out at the three hour and 36 minute COVID year zero um, You're welcome. Yeah, Phil or Vince, do you have one? 
Artie or Vince. It's so funny. They run together, but uh, that I do remember doing that, um, doing the Green New Deal episode and just being very pleased with it. I haven't listened to it in a long time, but yeah, I mean, although if you're, if you're new to the show, um, I would say probably like one of my favorites that we've, we've done, especially recently was mm-hmm. our, uh, our like big COVID episode called COVID year zero. Um, if you're new to the show, it's like, uh, we don't always do three hours. Um, almost four, <laughs> almost four. But, uh, if you do really want to jump in hard, it's, uh, it's a good one to start with. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Artie, do you have any uh, recommendations? I have a hard time picking between all the the Medicare for All week ones. Uh, mm-hmm. That's sort of like still my some of my favorite stuff that we've done, although it's very different from the rest of the show. But I'd say either like um, the the one that's the conversation with you, uh, B and uh, Vivian Negron um, oh, yeah. talking about from uh, Medicare for All week medical Legendary. billing and just speaking from the you know the perspective of someone who's just like worked for forty years um, doing billing to insurance companies and just who um, really really clearly lays out like what uh, what her job is like and how absurd some of the shit that they make her go through mm-hmm. um, is. I mean that's I'm I it's I'm so uh, I'm like really proud of. Uh, of that one in a way of like getting actually, that interview out there. You know? No offense to everyone I've ever sat down with for the show, but that is my favorite interview that I've ever been able yeah, to do because cool. she's also a dear friend. Oh, That's good. Yeah, no, it's, it's Vivian's a singular voice yeah. in the whole entire world. Very special. Mm-hmm. We love you. Thank you for coming on the show. Um, so yeah tape recession special. Sorry. Oh That's yeah. Good recession too. special. Oh, yes. We need to, we need to, um, we need to plug that one again because I know the recession like, that we predicted six months ago <laughs> is happening. Yeah. It's funny that we didn't Council we, of Economic Advisors. <laughs> I don't think we I don't think we picked um I don't think we picked pandemic out of the hat though, right? No, I don't think so. It was it was all like, much funnier reasons. Um another one too, and this is actually really recent, but because this came come came right before uh the pandemic it's, it's like almost hard to like remember but um the biopolitics election oh yeah um, which is a patreon Another episode good from a couple episode. weeks ago anyway patreon.com slash death panel pod get access to all that back content yep um i think with that that about does it for this episode thank you for listening stay alive another week and we'll see you next time yep bye 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 uh, bye
I'm a